Again, we're going through some of the most well-known, beloved Christmas hymns uh, as a window to Scripture, as maybe a way to see the Christmas Scriptures through a different light than you have ever seen them before. And, and the hymn, the Christmas carol we're looking at this morning is O Little Town of Bethlehem. O Little Town of Bethlehem was written by Philip Brooks in 1868. You may not know Philip Brooks, but uh, Dan mentioned um, Rick Warren. Philip Brooks was kind of the Rick Warren of his day. He was a very well-known, beloved pastor in Philadelphia in the 19th century. He actually preached the funeral sermon for Abraham Lincoln's funeral. So that, that just gives you an idea of how well-known that he was. As, as he came through that time, remember that's the end of the Civil War, pastoring through the Civil War was very, very difficult. Uh, doing the, sur- the funeral for Abraham Lincoln took its toll on him. And so following that, he took a sabbatical for several months, and during those several months he traveled in the Holy Land, uh, just seeking to be refreshed, seeking to get a, a clear vision of, uh, of his faith. And he found himself on Christmas Eve of that year, 1865, he found himself on horseback going from Jerusalem to Bethlehem. And he writes later how he remembers on horseback riding through the fields outside of Bethlehem, the very fields that those shepherds were keeping watch on and where they saw the star, the same fields he remembers that the story of Ruth and Boaz occurred uh, in many, many centuries even before that. He made his way into Bethlehem. He made his way to, if you have been there, what you know is called the Church of the Nativity. It's where, uh, or at least close to where the site of where Jesus is believed to have actually been born. He remembers standing there near that holy site reflecting on that. And it's these memories that came flooding back to him three years later in 1868 when he's preparing for his upcoming Christmas service, and he wants a new hymn. He wants a new song that that kind of brings those memories together for him and, and for his church. And so he wrote in a relatively short amount of time, he wrote the lines that we now know as the hymn, O Little Town of Bethlehem. You see even up on the screen, we have his original manuscript preserved from when he first wrote that, uh, that hymn. The hymn, uh, the, the words are, are his, Philip Brooks's, but it was set to music by somebody who ministered with him, Lewis Radner. Lewis uh, Radner, Radner remembers that uh, Philip Brooks came to him on a Friday, the Friday before the Sunday that he wanted that hymn to be sung. On that Friday, he asks him to write the music to set to that hymn. And of course, that's a lot of pressure on on somebody. And and Redner said, you know, that, that under that pressure, he just couldn't come up with anything. He went to bed frustrated on Saturday night, really with having nothing to show to Philip Brooks the next morning, but he writes that he woke up in the middle of that night, that Saturday night, with the melody in his head. He said it was like an angel stream whispering in my ear. And he set it to, he set that score the next morning to the words. They sang it for that first Sunday in that Christmas Sunday school service in 1868 there in Philadelphia. Neither Philip Brooks nor Lewis Redner thought that that hymn would ever be used again. 
But of course, it's been used over and over and over and has become one of our favorite hymns. Well, that's how it came about. Really, why, why would we even spend any time focusing on it? Because I, I think this hymn gives us a window, a glimpse of a part of the Christmas story that, again, is, is often overlooked and, and really is rich with what it says to you and to me even today. Let me begin with a question. What is the significance of Bethlehem? I mean, why did Philip Brooks choose to, other than his memories from his, his sabbatical, why did he choose to write a hymn about Bethlehem? Bethlehem, both at the time that Philip Brooks visited it and at the time that Mary and Joseph went to there when Mary gave birth, it was an insignificant little town. It really, even today, it does not have a lot of political significance other than today it's controlled by by the Palestinians. It's small. It's geographically unimportant. What is the significance of Bethlehem? Well, the story of Bethlehem begins way before the birth of Christ. It begins all the way back in the Old Testament book of Ruth. If you've ever read Ruth, a wonderful story. It's been called one of the great short stories of all times, a true story. And of course, in the book of Ruth, we see the story of a widowed Moabite woman named Ruth who follows her Israelite mother-in-law back to Israel, back to her hometown of Bethlehem. Naomi, the mother-in-law, had sojourned in, in Moab during, uh, for about 10 years probably, and during that time her sons had, had met and married Moabite women, including Ruth, and then both Naomi's husband died and her two sons died, and she was left with just her daughter-in-law's She told them, do the wise thing. Stay in Moab, find another husband, settle down, live your life, be blessed. But Ruth saw something about her mother-in-law. After living with her and observing her all those years, she saw a faith, a genuine faith in her mother-in-law, a faith in Yahweh, the God of Israel, nothing like Ruth had ever seen anywhere in Moab in all of its false religions. And Ruth said to Naomi, you may know these words, no, I'm not going to stay in Moab. Where you go, I will go. Where you live, I will live. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. She follows Naomi back to Bethlehem, and we see that story in the rest of Ruth. God honors Ruth's faith, her faith, her putting her faith in this God of Yah- this Yahweh God that, that she had seen Naomi worship and live by. God honored Ruth's faith by blessing her with a new marriage. He opens up marriage to Boaz, a resident, a wealthy resident of Bethlehem. And they, they marry, and, and we're told that Ruth and Boaz are blessed with a son who is named Obed. We see this in Ruth chapter 4. Obed grows up there in Bethlehem. He has a son named Jesse. Jesse grows up there in Bethlehem, and he has a son named David. Well, David starts out life as an ordinary, insignificant little boy. He is the youngest son of Jesse. He's the one they shuttle off to the fields to watch after the sheep when important things are going on at home. He really is the insignificant child of an ordinary man living in a backwater town, 
Bethlehem. And his life could have just gone on like that, except that God had other plans. And one day, God radically interrupts it, doing what no one humanly would ever expect in that family and with that boy. He sends his prophet Samuel. We pick this up in 1 Samuel 16. The Lord says to Samuel, I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem because I have chosen one of his sons to be king. You may know this story. It's not all there up on your screen there, but Jesse shows him all of his sons. No, 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 no. All those logical choices, they're not the ones to be king. And finally, they call in this youngest, this runt from the fields, David. And the Lord says to Samuel of David, this is the one. This is the one who's going to be my king. So this ordinary young man from this insignificant town becomes the greatest king of Israel. He rules for 40 years. He expands the kingdom, the nation of Israel to its greatest extent, both, both politically and, and, and in its military power and might. Well, it's not just an interesting coincidence that the greatest king of Israel comes from this small, insignificant town. That's all part of God's providential design. That's the way God works. And, and, and really, in doing that, God is, is pointing us, both then and now, to something that He wants to reveal to us, something that we see in what God says about Bethlehem a couple centuries later through His prophet Micah, Micah 5.2. You may know this passage. It's often referenced at Christmas. God speaks through Micah and says, but you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, Though you are small among the clans of Judah, one will come from you to be ruler over Israel for me. His origin is from antiquity, from eternity. Get the reference there. You're smallest, Bethlehem. You're smallest among the the towns, the clans of Judah. That's a a derogatory reference. That's saying, you know, that you're, you're easily overlooked. I ministered in, in a fairly small town at one time, Brainerd, but, but uh, we weren't big like Minneapolis, but, but we were bigger than Barrows, this little out-of-the-way place on the way to Brainerd. And you could always feel a little better about yourself living in Brainerd because you didn't live in Barrows. That's kind of the attitude towards Bethlehem that's reflected in here. It's small. It's insignificant. But isn't that just like God? As, as Paul tells us, God chooses what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chooses what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chooses what is low and despised. Why does he do that, Paul tells us? So that no human being might boast. So that what God does, no, none of us can take credit for. No, no part of human society can take credit for what God does. And through Micah's prophecy here, God is giving us a picture, first, of what He's already done. By the time Micah writes, what has He already done? He has raised up David as the greatest king that Israel has ever known. But now at the time that Micah writes, 200-some years have passed. David is long since dead and gone. In fact, David's dynasty by this point is decaying because his descendants have turned their backs on God. The, the kingdom is actually split into two kingdoms. It's, it's become weak. 
and it's about to be overrun, it's about to be crushed by the Assyrian and the Babylonian empires. And so as Micah writes, the people of Israel, they are longing, they, they are longing for another king like David who, who would restore Israel to its former unity, to its former glory, to its former power. And God promises through Micah that he will send them a greater king, that he was, he, he not, this is not only in Micah about what he has already done in raising up David, this is about what he's going to do. He's going to send a king who's going to be a greater king than David ever was, and this king will be substantially different from David in this way. David was mortal. David had a beginning and an end. This king will be from eternity. This kingdom will have no beginning. This kingdom will have no end. Why? Because he is eternal. He is divine. And of course, that's what this hymn is about. That's what we recall as we sing this, that Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, came into the world, but he did so in this most unexpected way. He came as a baby born in this humble little backwater town of Bethlehem. Well, the next lines of the hymn are probably familiar to you. Yet in thy dark street shineth the everlasting light. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. What does that recall for us as we sing it? Well, it recalls that it was in these dark streets of this insignificant little town that what the Bible presents as the everlasting light first begins to shine in the world. And that, by the way, that everlasting light, that is a reference to God's promise of His coming Messiah. He makes that promise through Isaiah, Isaiah 60, 19. No longer will you need the sun to shine by day, nor the moon to give its light by night, for the Lord your God will be your everlasting light. That's, that's what Jesus said about Himself. Do you realize that? When Jesus came and began His ministry, this is one of the many ways that He presented Himself to us, to you and to me. He says about Himself in John 8, I am the light of the world. Anyone who follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. This is a picture of Jesus. And what's more, everlasting light is a picture of the salvation that is offered to you and me through Jesus Jesus, the one that the Bible says is He who calls you out of darkness and into His marvelous light. That picture of the everlasting light dawning, shining into the, those dark streets of Bethlehem, that's a picture of what He does into our lives as He saves us. So the everlasting light of the world, it first began to shine in the dark streets of that, that humble little town of Bethlehem. And again, that's God's way. That's what James says about him. He opposes the proud. He gives grace to the humble. And so if that's the state of our hearts, that's the state that allows that light to shine in our hearts. You know, when, when our hearts are proud, that, that makes them hardened. It, it makes them uh, impervious to the light shining in. But as our hearts are humble, it, it makes our hearts porous. And that light, that everlasting light can begin to shine in our hearts. So as you sing the first verse of this hymn, 
this today. We're going to sing it in a few minutes. And, and throughout this Christmas system, I encourage you, reflect on what's the state of your heart this morning. Is, is your heart humble and soft and porous like this little town of Bethlehem? Or is your heart more like the big proud city of Jerusalem or New York City or whatever, whatever name you want to put in the blank there? Proud, self-important, self-consumed. It makes all the difference about whether this everlasting light can shine into your hearts. Maybe this Christmas, the circumstances of your life are, are actually having the effect of, of softening the hardened places in your heart. And I, and I ache for you if you're going through things that right now are having that effect upon you. I, I know the pain of that. And yet it's a good, good thing because that's what opens our hearts to be able to receive the true light of Christ. That's the, the thing that allows the everlasting light to shine into your life. Well, that's the first verse, uh, encouraging us to look at, inward at the state of our, our hearts. The, the second verse encourages us to look outward, actually upward, to look off of ourselves and, and to look upward to see God in His glory, especially the opening line, for Christ is born of Mary. Now, Philip Brooks chooses his words very carefully here, and, and really I think he uses what, what Luke describes in his gospel, chapter 135, of, of how the Holy Spirit came upon Mary, and God's power overshadowed her, and therefore the child that was born to her, Jesus, was holy, was the Son of God. Mary becomes pregnant without human conception. Mary becomes pregnant by divine miracle. And so the baby that is born to her is unique, is, is set apart from any other human baby that is ever born. That's really the meaning of holy, set apart. He is the Son of God. He is the Christ, the Messiah. He is the Son of God and the Son of Man, the Christ born of Mary. And that's why the rest of this verse, I think, describes really the, the, the reaction of the angels. The angels have been watching God orchestrate His plan of salvation. How is it that God, our, our God is going to save men and women? And they're watching all this, and they're seeing God move all these pieces into place. And Philip Brooks cap captures this when he writes the words, the angels keep their watch of wondering love. I mean, it was beyond their imagination that God would achieve our salvation in this way. Peter describes this, Peter 1, 12. It is all so wonderful that even the angels are eagerly watching these things happen. And the next line captures this as well. O morning stars together proclaim the holy birth. Morning stars, that's, that's a biblical reference to angels. And really what he's saying there is all heaven's angels are watching as God reveals His glory in that humble little town of Bethlehem. They all break out in, in joyful praise like Luke records. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly hosts appeared with the angel praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to men on whom His favor rests. Do you understand why the angels were so amazed? I mean, do you get the significance of this? You know, I think many people come into the Christmas season, and Jesus for them is that little figurine in the manger scene. He's that baby 
He's nothing more than that little infant, that little baby. They don't know him as the Christ. Is that you this morning? Listen to what even our church's, Central Church's statement of faith says about who this baby really is. We believe the Son of God is the second person in the Trinity that He did when the fullness of time was come, take upon Himself man's nature, yet without sin, being very God and very man, yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and man. This little baby is more than a figurine in a manger scene. This little baby is actually the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, fully God. This little baby was and is and always will be divine, fully God. And yet he's also fully human. He took upon himself human nature. He took upon himself a human body. That's the miracle of what happened there in Bethlehem. That was absolutely essential to God's plan. Why was it necessary that the eternal Son of God, in order to save us, had to take upon human nature? I think of the story. I don't know the origin of the story, but there was a man who really wrestled with this. In fact, he disbelieved Christianity on this point. How could God in all His greatness and all His holiness humble Himself, debase Himself by taking on a human form? Well, that was His position, and He he proclaimed that loudly and publicly. But one winter night, a flock of wild geese got caught in an early winter snowstorm on their way flying south to the winter, and they were forced down into the field next to His house. And he could look out the window in the storm there, and he could see them flapping their wings and flying around his field in low circles blindly and aimlessly. And he knew. He knew given the weather and he knew their condition that they were lost and stranded and they would die if they weren't able to find some kind of shelter from the storm. He thought, well, maybe they can find shelter in my barn. And so he went out and he opened the barn doors and he tried to herd this flock of wild geese into the barn. And you can imagine the results. They scattered in every direction but the barn. And then he thought, well, uh, maybe I'll, I'll try and entice them into the barn. So he went inside and he got some bread and he broke it up in little pieces and he tried to make some trails of breadcrumbs leading into the barn, but they still didn't catch on. And by this point, he's getting pretty frustrated. Why don't they follow me? He thought. Can't they see this is the only place where they'll survive the storm, that they'll die if they don't go into this this place, this safe place? Well, then he has an idea. He goes into his barn, and he takes out one of his own domesticated geese, and he, he carries that goose out in his own arms, and he circles around the flock of, of wild geese, and he lets his goose go. And what does that goose do? It does what it knew was wise. It flew straight into the barn. It flew through the flock of wild geese on the way into the barn, and one by one, those wild geese followed that domesticated goose into the safety of the barn. And as he watched that, it was as if a light came up, came on in his heart. And he finally said to himself, this is what God did. This is what God did. We we were like the geese. We were blind. We were lost. We were perishing. God became like one of us so that He could show us the way and He could save us. And at that moment, He fell to His knees in the snow, and He prayed His first real prayer in His life. Thank you, God, 
for coming in human form to get me out of the storm. The third verse of this hymn reminds us really of how countercultural Christ's birth was. You know the words. How silently, how silently the wondrous gift is given. What you may not know is Brooks is not talking there about how quiet Bethlehem was. It wasn't quiet then. It isn't quiet at the time Brooks visited. It's not quiet today. What is he talking about? He's, he's talking about how this, this birth, so, so countercultural in the way it happened, it just happened in obscurity, that no one really took notice of it except, you know, people at the lowest end of the social ladder, some shepherds. It's like, you know, if, if Jesus came today, what would the public relations firm tell him to do? You know, you need to come in such a way that we can get you on the cover of People magazine, and we're going to get you on the cable news circuit so you get on all the big shows. We got to make a big splash like that. But Jesus came so counterculturally. He came silently. He came without notice. He came in the most humble of these circumstances. Really, that, 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 that I think makes us think about, would, would we see him if he came today? Do we see him even in the midst of Christmas today? Mart Dahan, who uh, is one of the publishers of that little devotional book, The Daily Word, uh, he, he, he reflects on this, and he writes this, this little poem. I'm not, I'm not one for using poems very often, but this one goes in a direction I can really relate with. He, the, the name of this poem is, Can This Be Christmas? What's all this hectic rush and worry? Where go these crowds who run and hurry? Why all these lights, these Christmas trees? This jolly fat man, tell me please. Here's the world's answer. Why don't you know? This is the day for parties, family, fun, and play. Why, this is Christmas. And while there's nothing wrong with those things, parties, families, fun, and play, for most of the world, this is, this is Christmas. This is all there is to Christmas. But Dahan goes on and says, so this is Christmas, do you say? But where is Christ this Christmas day? Has he been lost among the throng, his voice drowned out by empty song? You know, and today is no different than the day that Mary and Joseph arrived in, in Bethlehem. Today, you know, because Jesus doesn't heed good public relations advice and, and reveal himself in some big flashy way, very few people take any real notice of him. And why is that? Because he's not following good public relations advice? No, that's because we're all naturally blind to spiritual truth. You and I, as we come into this world, we can't naturally see him. We, we see the artificial lights of Christmas. We can't, with our own human eyes, see the everlasting light of the Christ of Christmas. So how can we be saved? If, if we're spiritually blind, if if, if it's not a matter of intelligence or some kind of spiritual sensitivity that, that we can conjure up in ourselves, how can we be saved? Well, the next verse of Philip Brooks's hymn tells us, God imparts to human hearts the blessing of His heaven. You see, friends, we don't come to Christ because we have the intelligence to be able to understand the gospel. 
We don't come to Christ because we have some kind of moral inner quality or some spiritual sensitivity that we get it and other people don't get it. We come to Christ out of our blindness because God does a miraculous work in our heart by His Holy Spirit. He imparts in our hearts. He, he turns the light on spiritually within us so that we can behold the Christ. We can behold the glory of God in the face of Christ. This is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4. The very same God who brought light into creation, let there be light in the darkness, He has made this light shine in our hearts so that we can know the glory of God that is seen in the face of Jesus Christ. I don't care how high your IQ is or how low it is for that matter. You and I can't get it on our own. It is a wonderful, gracious work of God that He imparts the ability for us to see in our hearts. And that's why we come to Christ So as you sing this verse of the hymn this Christmas, let me ask you, has God imparted the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ to your heart? Has that everlasting light really begun to shine in your heart? Can you identify with Mart DeHaan when he kind of finishes his poem like this? I'm tired of all this empty celebration of feasting, drinking, recreation. I'll go instead to Calvary And there I'll kneel with those who know the meaning of that manger low and find the Christ this Christmas. And I hope you enjoy your time with your families. I hope you enjoy parties and all the the trappings of the season. But I hope you find the Christ in Christmas. I hope you go to Calvary this Christmas. That's the kind of response, by the way, that the last verse, the fourth verse of this hymn calls us to. O holy child of Bethlehem, descend to us, we pray. Cast out our sin and enter in. Be born in us today. Philip Brooks later wrote about that last verse there, about those lyrics. He, he wrote it really as an invitation in the same way that God introduces his wondrous gift in Bethlehem silently, without big fanfare, without uh, big public relations. So Christ comes into our lives today. If he, if he hasn't, Christ can come into your life today. He casts out our sins and our fears. He enters in if we sincerely invite him in to do so. How about you? Have you sincerely invited Christ to enter in to cast out your sin. If you haven't, you can do that today. If you haven't, this Christmas season could be the first truly meaningful Christmas season in your life as you do that. What does it mean that Christ can be born in us today? You know, there's a lot we could say about that. I would just give you what has become my personal life verse, Galatians 2.20. This image of Christ coming into our lives, casting out our sin and entering into me is encapsulated when Paul said, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered himself up for me. That for me is a picture of what he's done in my life as he's entered in, as he's cast out my sin and my guilt. 
Well, there you have it. There's the gospel in a little town of Bethlehem. You and I, we come broken by our sin. We come humbly before a God who reveals himself to us in the most unexpected way. This little baby is actually Jesus the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God. We come offering him nothing. We have nothing to contribute to the equation but our sin and our guilt. But God in his grace does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. He imparts to our human hearts the blessings of his heaven. He gives us eyes to see the everlasting light in the face of Jesus Christ. And as we turn to him in repentance and faith, he casts out our sin and he enters in. He abides in us, our Lord Emmanuel. So let me just close making Phillips Brooks own words, an invitation to you this morning. In the same way that God's wondrous gift came to Bethlehem silently, so Christ, and I'll change it slightly here, can come into your life this morning. He can cast out your sin. He can cast out your fear if you sincerely invite him to do so. If you have not what, what, there's no better day than, than, than today. There's no better time than this morning. You can do that today. You can come up front afterwards. One of us will pray with you. You can turn to somebody and ask them beside you, do you know this one that, that, that we have just heard about? And ask them to pray for you. Do it today. Cast out our sin and enter in. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for... Lord, we we are shook by the wonder that the angels must have felt that your plan of salvation would, would come to this. And you would come out of all of your glory and your holiness, and you would come into the sinful world, and you would approach us in our sinful lives, and you would offer this free gift. You would impart to our hearts the blessings of your heaven. Lord, I am so thankful that you shone in the darkness of my life, and I'm sure many of my brothers and sisters here this morning feel and can pray the same. And I ask, Lord, if there is anyone who does not know you in this way, this would be the first real Christmas in their lives as they allow Jesus to enter in, to cast out their sin, to cast out their fears, to abide with them as their Emmanuel. We pray in his name. Amen.